In recent uh, times, I think it's fair to say that the values of our society in the United Kingdom and the cultural landscape of Britain has changed, hasn't it? And it's changed almost beyond recognition. So the values in our society, cultural landscape, totally changed in a short space of time. Contrary to what I said to you last time that I was preaching on a Sunday night, I am not that old. And consider what we've seen in the last 40 years. So even in just my short lifetime, we've seen go out the last vestiges of cultural Christianity, haven't we? And then in my lifetime, we've lived through this strange failed attempt in our society at multiculturalism or a multi-faith society. And where do you and I find ourselves this evening? Friends, doesn't not feel like we're living in something of an authoritarian age. Isn't that right? Doesn't it feel like that? A, a time where there is this set of progressive values. Values that in a way we dare not challenge or speak out against. And values if we did challenge, we would be ostracized in our society. We would be opposed or even worse, our society has changed and changed massively and changed quickly. Now, if you were here two weeks ago for the last in this sermon series, you'll recall we thought about Christian persecution. Do you remember that? We examined what it might look like and how we might endure should the Christian faith continue to be marginalized in the United Kingdom. Now, this evening, just now, we're going to continue in that theme, although it has to be adjusted somewhat, because this is what God is going to address tonight. He is going to address the attitude of the church. Or let me be a little bit more precise about that. This evening, in his word, what God does is address or answer that burning question that I, am, I reckon most of us as Christians have in our hearts just now. This question... How should the people of God respond? Yeah, you're not asking that? How should the Christian church react when there is pressure all around us and pressure to conform? So does it not feel relevant already? I mean, in, what is it, Pride Month this month? Does it not feel somewhat relevant to think about the culture and the pressures on the church? Well, if you agree, will you not turn your Bibles? Make sure that you have Revelation chapter 2 open in front of you as we consider the first of three headings tonight. And it's this, and we're going to look at some praise. Some praise. That's the first heading. Now, it's getting towards that time of year, isn't it, when people are thinking about holidays. Okay, and maybe some of you have got elaborate plans to be dotting about city to city, exploring the world. Well, are we not kind of doing something similar to that in our Sunday evenings, aren't we? You see what I mean has happened in the sermon series. We have been, yeah, enjoying this whirlwind tour of the cities of Asia in the first century. So where have we been on this great grand tour of ours? We've been to Ephesus, the jewel in the crown of Asia. Then we went up the coast a little bit, last time out to Smyrna. And then this evening, do you see where we are? We've gone inland a little bit to this place with a strange name. We're tonight we're in a place called Pergamum. So what is the deal with 
Pergamum. Well, don't you think it's really fascinating to see how Jesus describes the town? Did you know? Look at verse 13. Did you pick up on the repetition here? It's fascinating. He, Jesus says that Pergamum was both where Satan had his throne, and then Luke again, where Satan dwelt. There's this repetition about the satanic presence in the city. So, wow, that's heavy, isn't it, a little bit? I mean, what what is Jesus talking about there? You will understand it if you bear these two things in mind. Okay, keep these two things in view. Pergamum 1 was a center of pagan idolatry and pagan worship. Pergamum, a center. Everyone get it? Center of pagan worship, pagan idolatry. It's quite, it's quite difficult, I think, to picture what Pergamum would have been, what it would have looked like. Don't you think so? Like, I struggle with us. Maybe it'd be helpful if I explain it or describe it very, very briefly. So, Pergamum was a city in the ancient world. You know, we're first century, second century here. And it was a city that was set at the foot of a very steep hill, a very, very steep incline. So maybe the boys and girls can think about this and try and imagine it with me, okay? So you're listening? So Pergamum's at the bottom of a hill. So at the bottom of the hill, boys and girls, you had all the streets of Pergamum and you had all the houses. So all the hustle and bustle of Pergamum was down at the foot of the hill. And then this gets interesting. You ready? And then on the hill were lots of steps, big significant terraces that worked their way up to this big building, this big acropolis on the top. Now, maybe the adults are thinking this sounds a bit like a history lesson or a geography lesson and this doesn't sound very interesting. Well, it is interesting, okay? It's interesting when you realize this, that on that incline and on those terraces were a huge number of headquarters of pagan religions and pagan cults. Now, can you picture it? Can you imagine it? On one terrace, you had the headquarters for the worship of Zeus, for the whole of Asia, and all of its sexual immorality, and all of its idolatry that went along with that. Then you go in another terrace, and it had the headquarters for the worship of Dysos, and all the nonsense that went with that. Then, she went further up the hill, was the center of the worship of Ascheliops, whose symbol, wait for it, was a coiled serpent. It's interesting when you think about Jesus' description of the satanic presence in Pergamum. Now, what are you thinking, Christian friend? Already, what are you thinking? Aren't you thinking, wow, this must have been a difficult place to be a believer? I mean, aren't you? Think about it. All these people throughout Asia traveling in Pergamum all for its pagan sacrifices coming in at Pergamum for its sexual immorality and for pagan sacrifices, pagan worship. It must have been almost impossible to be a Christian in that place. And that's just the first of the two things. So you ready for the second of the two things you've got to bear in mind? Pergamum was also a center of Roman administration. See, uh, can you remember, were you here two weeks ago? Can you remember what we said about Smyrna 
the letter. Remember what we said about Smyrna? That Smyrna was a place that was loyal to Rome. Can you, you remember that, do you? We said in Smyrna that um, you had to worship Caesar as Lord. You had to say that Caesar was God. And if you didn't do that, you would be ostracized. Do you remember from business and commerce and so forth? you remember that from Smyrna? Well, I need you to understand this, that for, for Pergamum, you've got to think about Smyrna, but with bells on. You've got to understand that, that Pergamum was a place where Rome ruled with an iron fist. Pergamum was the seat of Roman power for the whole of Asia. It was a place where only full submission to Roman values could be tolerated, could be accepted. It was a place to be a Christian was something that would face inevitable testing and inevitable trial and inevitable persecution. And if you're sitting there doubting that, you just need to look again at verse 13. Because you remember what we said about Smyrna? Jesus promised them future persecution. What do you read? You see that in Pergamum, that overt persecution had already begun. Look at this. Antipas had already been killed. He'd already been martyred for his faith. Do you see the point I'm making? Jesus Christ is correct in his description of this city. It was a satanic place. It was a place where Satan ruled. Now let me let you into a little secret about writing a sermon. Sometimes when you're writing a sermon, when Harrison's doing this, when I'm doing it, when Brad is doing it in here, we will spend the week panicking about how to apply a sermon to London Presbyterian Church. Really, you know, we will be praying and freaking out and pleading with God to, to show us how a section of scripture applies to our church, okay? And sometimes it's not like that. And sometimes we get to a, a text and it is so obvious how it applies. And it is so apparent how relevant it is. And surely tonight that's the case. Surely as you learn about Pergamum and its immorality and its pagan idolatry and you think about the Christians there, surely you see the parallel with you as a Christian living in a city like London. Don't you? Come on. Don't you see the parallel here? I mean, come on. Like, let's say we, I don't know, let's transport ourselves. Let's say we were a group of Christians who were living in the far northeast of Scotland. Let's take Scotland as an example. Let's say that we're living out in one of these little villages, these little seaboard villages in the middle of nowhere up in Scotland, in the northeast Scotland. What would we know? We would know, if we're living up in that village, we would know that society is changing, wouldn't we? We would know something about progressive values. We would know that there's stuff coming up from way off there in Edinburgh or way off there in London. It's making our way up. But what would be the reality that some of those progressive values would not have taken firm root in our little seaborne village in the northeast of Scotland. You can see it, right? You know, you, you're going down the village to see old Auntie Betty on Tuesday afternoon for a cup of coffee. And what do you know about old Auntie Betty? She, she doesn't really have any track for progressive values. Or maybe you're working with old Sammy in the boots. 
You know, and Sammy's been on the boats for years. And big guy, and he's, and he's, been working, he's been working with him all the hours of the day. What do you know about Sammy? Sammy does not wear rainbow badges. Like, Sammy is not an LGBT guy. You know, he doesn't follow it. He thinks it's a, a number play, you know. But don't you see that it's really different for us? I mean, you know that, don't you? Like, you and I are on a battlefield. And the progressive values of our liberal society are right in our face. Do you see, friends, that you as a Christian are living where Satan has his throne? You are living where Satan dwells. And because of that, don't we need to pay attention to the praise that Jesus gives the Christian Pergamum in verse 14? Have a look at verse 14 and see what he praises these Christians for in that climate. Now, think about this before we get to verse 14. This was a climate where the Romans demanded that Christians curse the name of Jesus or die. That's your climate. And then what does, look at verse 14, what does Jesus praise them for? (laughs) He praises them for holding fast his name and for not denying his faith. And I think that should wake London City Presbyterian Church up from its stupor and from its slumber. Because what is it that the Lord Christ wants from you, Christian friend, in our progressive liberal society? He wants you to take a stand for his name. To speak up more and not to deny the faith even by your silence not to deny the lord jesus christ in the workplace in your home with your unbelieving family with your unbelieving friends he wants us to declare what we in this church know to be true what do we know to be true it is not progressive values but jesus christ who is lord Are we doing that? Are you doing that? Will we do that as our culture changes? So we see some praise. Second thing that we see here, though, is some problems. We see some problems, secondly. Now, have you heard the name Andy Stanley before? Does anybody know that name? Some people know the name Andy Stanley. I'm kind of hoping you don't know the name, really. Um, Andy Stanley is an American evangelist who's caused quite a lot of uh, controversy over the last month or so. Um, Andy Stanley has basically said that the best way to promote the gospel today, and I'm going to use his language, okay? He says the best way to promote the gospel is to unhitch it from the Old Testament, Okay, so he's kind of saying that if we're going to reach Western society, best thing for us to do, I think he's saying, get rid of the Old Testament, focus on the New Testament, unhitch the New Testament from the baggage of the Old Testament. Okay, so that's where he's going. And he said, now, you know what I'm going to say next, right? What rubbish, you know, what utter nonsense. Okay, we accept that in this church. But what I find really fascinating here is how alien that would have been to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you read Revelation 2 there really carefully, did you know what Jesus does? Did you see what he does? He actually uses the Old Testament to teach people. He's using the Old Testament and then particular did you get it 
He uses that story that Adrian kindly read for us earlier on the story of Balaam and Balak. Now, I know I'm on pretty sturdy ground at this point because you good people, you know your Bible well, right? And we've read part of the story. So I'm confident we know the story of Balaam and Balak, do we? Even if we don't, I'm just going to paraphrase it in five seconds, okay? It's really important if we're going to understand Revelation 2. So Balaam and Balak are trying to persecute the people of God. They want to bring God's people down. So what do they do? They launch, they launch overt persecution against the people of God. Did you notice it in the text though? I was laughing as I was sitting here because it's so utterly wonderful. Every time they launch, they try to curse the people of God. What does God do? He takes their overt persecution and turns it on their heads and he blesses their people, you know? Kills their attempts at persecution, right? Beautiful, beautiful thing. So what do they do, Balaam and Balak? They, now here we get to it, right? They change tactic. And instead of trying to persecute the people of God, they now try to lure them into compromise with the surrounding culture. Now, did you pick up on that or not? In Numbers 25, what Balaam does is he sends pagan women, sends them into the Israelite camp, And he lures the Israelite men into sexual immorality, into pagan idolatry and pagan worship. Do you follow it? Now that's a pretty sneaky plan, isn't it? Not overt persecution, but compromise. Unfortunately, it's a plan that worked. Now, question for you. You're on trial now. Can you see why the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 2 is speaking to the Christians in Pergamum about Balaam and Balak. Can you see? It's because the same thing was happening here in this city. And I wonder if you all got the parallels or not. Do you see the parallels with Balaam and Balak or not? As Christ looks on in Pergamum, what does he see? He sees that Satan has tried overt persecution against the Christians in Pergamum. And has it worked? It hasn't worked. They've held fast the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Satan do? Same as Balaam and Balak. What does Satan do? He tries to lure these Christians into compromise with the society. Friends, you must have noticed verse 15, did you? And the mention of Nicolaitans. Did everyone notice the mention of Nicolaitans? Who are they? Guess who they are? False teachers. People purporting to be Christians, but people in the church saying to the church, come with us into sexual immorality. Saying to the church, it's okay to adopt the practices of society. It's okay compromise. Think of it. People in the church saying to the church, come on, let's go with the culture. Now, at the risk this evening of sounding repetitive, sounding like a broken record. Don't you as a Christian sitting here in London see the relevance and the parallel of this? Friends, the problem that the Christians were facing in Pergamum is the very same problem that we face as a church in the United Kingdom. Voices, think of our situation, 
voices purporting to be Christians saying to the church, it is okay to compromise with the culture. Do you want specific examples? Do you need specific examples? Voices inside the church luring Christians into approving of the ordination of openly gay ministers. Voices within Side the church trying to lure Christians into throwing out biblical teaching on gender roles. Voices within side the church saying to Christians, you can work with, move towards Islam. You can go with the culture on matters to do with abortion. You can go with the culture on matters of homosexuality. Wolves in sheep's clothing, not just agreeing with immorality, but trying to entice the people of God to go with them. Now, now, tonight in Revelation 2, you see, you see God's attitude to this. It is utterly unacceptable. But as Christians, don't we sit here and want to know, how do we respond? Like, what do we do on the ground in London? How do we deal with this? Well, let me give you two very concrete points in application, Christian friend. One, we need to teach our covenant children the dangers of modern day Nicolaitans. We need to teach the children of our church these things. Um, my wife and I had a conversation this week, one that I've spoken about, well, I've had it many times before, and I've spoken about it from the pulpit. But we were talking about the amount of young Christians that we have seen move into this city. Now, these are people from different parts of the world, and they are people who have come from Christian homes and Christian churches, but I'm going to dare to say young Christians who have not been taught on important matters. And so many of these people... And what happens? They move into London and they choose a church based on what? Based on how close it can get to the prevailing culture. So purporting to be Christians, coming from Christian homes, Christian churches, coming in London and choosing the church because it resembles our society, resembles the values of this age. Now, guess where those people are today? I mean, I can list off name after name after name after name. And nearly all of them today either are infrequently in church or today never darken the door of a church. Do you see the point I'm making? Friends, we have to get so much better at teaching our children. Now, I mean teaching the children in the church, yes. But I mean teaching our children in our homes, we get, need to get better teaching them about the contemporary sins, the sins of our age, and the central importance of finding churches that do not compromise. And then the second point of application, do you know what we need to do? Perhaps we need to do what Jesus commands in verse 16. Have a look at the first two words. Now, he says, interestingly, not to the Nicolaitans, but to the church. He says, therefore, repent. 
And it may well be that we have Nicolaitans at London City Presbyterian Church. I wonder if we do, even tonight. Do we have people inside the visible church, people who agree with the values of our age, the progressive values of our society, people who not only agree with these things, but are willing to be vocal about it, willing to try and persuade other people in our church. Do we have Nicolaitans? Then as a church, we have to be very wary and we cannot be tolerant of these things at all, lest the one with a sharp two-edged sword come to chastise us at London City Presbyterian Church. So we see some praise of these people. We see some problems in this church. And then the third and last thing that we see tonight, we also see some promises. Some uh, promises. Now we get so many visitors at London City Presbyterian Church. It's one of the joys of my life that I get to meet so many brothers and sisters from different parts of the world. So if you're a regular here, you're just going to have to bear with me and forgive me if what I say next sounds a little bit familiar to you, because I need everyone to be on the same page with us. I need us all in this room to understand that the seven letters in Revelation have some common ground. So the regulars, do you know where I'm going with this? Do you? That each of the seven letters begin the same way, don't they? Remember we did this last time? They all begin with a part of that vision in Revelation 1 of the Son of Man. Each of the letters begin with a part of that description. And each of the seven letters end the same way. Don't we know that? That they all end with a promise from Christ to Christians who persevere. Now, see the end of the letter to the church in Pergamum. We can find that really confusing if you look at it in verse 17. Because it seems to be that there's all, there's just like these three kind of random promises from Christ that don't seem to bear any resemblance or relationship to one another. And it seems all over the shop. And I want you to see that it's not like that. See, each of those three promises in verse 17 exists to underline one crucial, beautiful, life-changing truth. That awaiting those who endure in Christ Jesus is eternal, intimate fellowship with God. Eternal, intimate fellowship with God. And I want to show you what I'm talking about. So would you do this? Because we're nearly closing. We're nearly finished. So would you look at halfway through verse 17? Let's look at it. What's the first promise? You see it? To the one who conquers, what's going to be given? Boys and girls, you're going to have to be sharp because I'm going to ask you about this. Okay? To the one who conquers, the first thing is given is some hidden manna. Boys and girls, do we know what manna is? We do, don't we? It's the food that the people of God were given in the wilderness in the Old Testament, isn't it? Friends, do you see what you, the promise from Christ to you is here? Hidden manna coming to you. Do you see what the promise is? It's messianic promise, isn't it? The idea that one day we will be given over admitted to a feast, a banquet, we will receive the hidden manna in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then read on. Look at the next promise. I love this and have been thinking on this and praising God for this all week. 
Because it sounds really strange, doesn't it? So the next promise is, we are given a white stone. A white stone. But it's so beautiful. You see, a white stone is called a, a tessera. And it was given in the ancient world in a variety of settings. Now, listen to me for this. It's lovely. So a tessera, a white stone in the ancient world, was given to victors in games as a sign of their triumph. We might expect a gold medal. In the ancient world, they were given a white tessera, a white stone. That's lovely, right? Gets better. Because another setting for the tessera was a courtroom. So in the ancient world, if you were on trial and you were vindicated, you were declared innocent in the courtroom, you would be given this white stone. Isn't that nice as well? Isn't it lovely? It gets better still. Because in the ancient world, you were also given a tessera, a white stone, as a sign of admission to a great banquet. You know how you and I might go to a feast or a banquet with an invitation that we've had just to prove that we're due to be in there. In the ancient world, they would be given a white stone. The door would open and they would be admitted. And now you see it, don't you? Like now you see what Jesus Christ is saying to us who persevere, to those who endure, those who are victorious in Christ Jesus, right? Isn't that it? Those who are victorious, Christ Jesus admits us to the great marriage banquet, that feast that is to come for all of the people of God. And then the last detail here. Do you notice it? On that stone is a new name. And I know some of you have been studying Isaiah in recent times, and maybe that's familiar to you. That in fulfillment of Isaiah 62, in fulfillment of Isaiah 65, and fulfilled in Revelation 14, we see the picture that we learn in Revelation 14 of the day that we will come before God and you and I in Christ will be given a new name. We will have written on our forehead, it says, the name of the Lamb of God, the name of God written upon us. You see it again, don't you? Another sign of our membership of this messianic community of the Almighty God. And surely tonight, as a Christian, and you're reading these promises, surely you rejoice. Because what is it God is saying to you in his word this evening? If we stand firm, if we do not compromise on God's word, there will be a time where we see our true ruler and our great God, and he will embrace us, and he will in the last usher his children into a place where you and I will dine and we will dine in intimacy with the king of kings. And so I end tonight, but I don't do it in the normal way. Normally I would plead with you if you're not a Christian and I would plead with you to confess your sin and come to Christ and as much as I would love to see that happen, I am not going to plead with you tonight. 
Instead, I appeal to the children of God, to you if you are a Christian. I appeal to you if you know Jesus Christ. You are living in a society that is changing fast, rapidly. What scale of change won't you this evening renew your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Won't we do that? Won't we resolve to speak up more this week for Jesus? To teach other people of Jesus? And won't we resolve to hold fast that name? What name? The name that is above every other name. Friends, let's hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's bow and let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that for Pergamum Read London, we thank you so much, Lord God, that your word is so relevant to us in our predicament, that this is a letter to Pergamum. It is a letter to all of the churches in Asia in the first and second centuries. It is a letter to LCPC. Lord God, we are confused by our society. We see the rage of sin and the rage of the evil one. Help us to cherish what is righteous and good and pure. Help us to be loving to other people, but not to compromise in the gospel and not to compromise where the name of the Lord Christ is concerned. So we pray Uh, to you just now, confessing our sin, worshiping you as the great God. Amen.